All right, thanks again, guys. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Hiawatha. Am I okay here, Dave? <laughs> a little echoey. Uh, thanks, band, again. I, I joke for a service. That's a great moral to start a service off of, or sermon off of, you know, not cheating. Or cheating gets it faster. That's uh, a great... Uh, it does relate, um, which we'll, uh, we'll get to here in a second. Am I okay here, Dave? I feel kind of echoey. Am I all right? Okay. Test. Okay. Great. Well, welcome to our church, guys. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors. If it's your first... First Sunday, uh, welcome to our, one of our gatherings. Uh, we are in Zechariah right now as a uh, sermon series. So if you want to turn there on your phone apps or your uh, Bibles in front of you or the ones you brought with you, that'd be great. We're in Zechariah 11 today, the whole chapter, looking at the theme of um, 30 pieces of silver, which I'll talk about in uh, just a minute. Uh, there, these last segments of Zechariah contain some very explicit uh, prophecies about Jesus Christ. And by explicit, I mean quoted in the New Testament, referenced verbatim. And so we'll look at one of those again today and the next two weeks as well. We did last week too, kind of four in a row by chapter, um, which uh, Zechariah then is a great book to look at in terms of prophecy and fulfillment, explicitly anyway. Um, and so we'll get some of that later. But our uh, working uh, summary of the book, these last couple of weeks, it um, is getting uh, to be a, a lot to summarize in terms of the whole book. And so our working brief summary on what Zechariah is uh, all about uh, is uh, as follows. Apocalyptic visions and prophetic oracles about Jesus Christ and other New Testament realities from the vantage point of Israel's return from Babylonian exile in 520 BC. Uh, so contextually and historically, uh, there are exiles, Israeli exiles, Jewish exiles, returning from Babylon. They were there in captivity due to their sins, separated from God and his good land, the promised land in Canaan. Uh, they're returning uh, based on God's grace alone and his love for them. He promised beforehand it would last only 70 years. He made good on his promise, and he's bringing them back now uh, by, by grace. And so really important to understand that historical piece as we understand the theological piece. And so the theological connection between Zechariah and the New Testament gospel, as we've been saying throughout this series, is that just as God graciously returned Israel to the land, so will he one day return sinners truly, ultimately, perfectly, and fully to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. So a big theme of the book is return. In fact, we call these last few prophets of the Old Testament the return prophets because they prophesy during the return. But that return serves as definitely a, a, a picture of, more than a picture, a reality of grace, but also a picture of future grace. So it's, it's a commentary on the present what God's doing graciously in the present to his people, but with one eye in the future, what he's truly going to do in the future when he kind of uh, maximizes what he's starting here at the end of, of the Old Testament. And if you know the Bible, you know that's not just a, a, a picture of this segment of, of uh, Old Testament history, but really all of Old Testament history, all of history. Uh, the problem is that we're not where God is because of our sins. So when God promises and, and acts on his promise of bringing people back, it's a, a picture of, of true salvation that we as Christians would say we have ultimately in Christ, and we'll, we'll get to that. So with that in mind, uh, we're going to read Zechariah 11. It's a very difficult passage, uh, even in Zechariah terms, and Zechariah is a tough book. So uh, basically it's a, a vision or it's a, a prophecy, an oracle, about uh, people, the people of Israel rejecting God's good given leader or good given shepherd, and Zechariah is a picture of that shepherd. There's more going on too, and I'll summarize that afterwards, but um, just have your antennas up for Jesus, as we always encourage you to, especially the explicitly uh, referenced prophecy in Matthew that I'll mention a little bit later, but also 
how Zechariah here is pointing us to Christ in his actions uh, as, as well. So let's read it in full here to begin. Verse 1. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cypress, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, Oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Thus says the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them, slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, I become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor, and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land. And I will deliver none from their hand. So I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one named Favor, the other named Union, and I tended the sheep. In one month I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed, and let those who are left to devour the flesh of one another do that. And I took my staff favor and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff, union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Then the Lord said to me, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for behold, I am raising up the land in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed, or seek the young, or heal the maimed, or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. Okay, so to, to simplify this uh, in short, again, there's a lot going on here that we won't have time for today. Uh, but basically, this is a picture of Israel rejecting God's appointed shepherd. Though he's good, the shepherd is good, and a much better kind of shepherd than the ones who formerly led them. There's a lot of moving parts to this. Actually, and part of the uh, story from last week is that God is against the bad shepherds. He's against the shepherds of Israel, the functional pastors of the days, against bad leadership. And he's installing, again, big prophecy theme here, if you know other parts of the, the Old Testament, is to say that God will install a new kind of shepherd. He himself will be that shepherd, and he will rule perfectly. And in a way that the former shepherds, uh, the bad ones, the sinful ones, the abusive ones, did, did not. And so Zechariah here, as you see in, in verse 7, he says, I became the shepherd of the flock. So Zechariah, as a prophet, is speaking about these things, but he's enacting this too. He's serving by his example and his actions as a picture of what the future holds when God would send another like him to be a good shepherd, but to rule in an even greater way as a shepherd leader than Zechariah did as kind of a shepherd prophet. So Zechariah then is, is acting as though he were a prophetic sign of what was to come. So again, have, so have that in mind. Again, there's, there's commentary on the present here, but the prophets always do this beautifully and wonderfully. There's, it's nuanced, but they, they comment on the present. As they're commenting on the present, they always have one eye in the future for greater versions of what was happening in the present. 
And those future things always have to do with Jesus and the New Testament. So this is a major theme in the Old Testament too. Uh, by the way, I kind of alluded to this earlier a little bit too, but the theme of rejection of leadership is not just here. So if you're new to the Bible, just understand this is a cyclical thing in terms of Israel's experience as a, a, a paradigm or a, a picture, a microcosm of the, the human race and our propensity to rebel as well against uh, God-given leadership. Uh, but this is a major thing. It's really important to know that so you can feel the weight of this uh, as it's talked about here at the end of this entire cycle of the Old Testament, continuing to say this, but right on the cusp of God doing a new thing through his son and ending this type of uh, cycle as well. But if you read uh, Acts 7 in the New Testament, uh, Stephen, one of the first Christians, a Jewish Christian, uh, speaks, and I won't talk about the context here, it'll take a little bit too long, but he basically gives this lengthy sermon, it's the whole chapter, on this theme of how the people time and time again rejected God's appointed prophet or king or leader, maligning them, deriding them, or even many times killing them. This happens repeatedly. So if you know the stories in the Old Testament, think of people like Joseph and Moses and David and many of the prophets. They are um, sinners, but they're also basically good people that God has appointed to lead, but they're rejected and maligned and um, made fun of basically and, and ultimately, and some of them, uh, in regards to the prophets especially, killed. So it's ultimately then, according to Stephen, leads us to Christ. Uh, so this theme then finds its goal, this prophetic theme of sorts, finds its goal in, in Jesus. And actually Christ himself, Jesus himself, has a parable about this. In Matthew 21 he says, Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. And then he went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance." So the, the parable here refers to God being the master, the servants are like the prophets, and the son is Jesus. And so it's kind of a commentary on the whole of the Old Testament story, how uh, God planted this vineyard, uh, he was the God of all creation, he appointed Israel to be a chosen people for himself for various purposes, he sent prophets to them, but they maligned, killed, beat, stoned, uh, and then the son comes, Jesus, and they do the same to him. So the Bible then puts its finger on this theme from many different vantage points, through narrative, prophecy, and parable. Rejection, 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 rejection of God and his appointed shepherds and leaders. Jesus and Stephen both get at this idea in their parables and sermons, uh, respectively. There's a trajectory to these many rejections of the biblical story, especially in the Old Testament. They point to something beyond themselves. They point to Jesus' rejection and anticipate it. They are a symptom of the human propensity to reject God himself, as if our rejection of good leadership, our hesitancy to follow, points to our hesitancy to believe and entrust God, our true leader, for everything. So what I want to do this morning is uh, look at Zechariah 11, kind of as a, this will be a very launch pad kind of sermon, and by that I mean using it to launch into a bunch of things, two primarily, but a lot of themes. 
we'll look at it from this human side and divine side. So human side meaning uh, where are we in the passage? Is there a principle uh, here that can apply kind of on more of a horizontal human level? Also uh, vertical with God. We'll talk about that. But then the divine side as well. And that is to ask the question, where is Jesus here? Where, where is Zechariah himself uh, not just uh, a human but kind of imaging something more divine, the, the Son of God who would come to fill his shoes and be the ultimate Zechariah, the ultimate prophet. And so we'll get to that in uh, just a little bit. But, but I want to talk a little bit about leadership this morning from a, a certain angle. Uh, Spencer did a great job last week talking about this from other angles. Um, but I want to talk about it from one angle here today on theme with what we, with what we just said. And that is uh, the human side of the prophecy. The rejection of good leadership indirectly, without even trying to, uh, tells us the gospel story. And so let me uh, just start by speaking to those of you who are leaders for a second. A lot of you are or you will be inside the church maybe, whether that's here or a different church you're a part of if you're just visiting or outside of the church. I know a lot of you are are bosses or supervisors. You lead people. People follow you on different levels. A lot of you are parents. All of you have parents. Uh, In fact, on the parent level, I really don't need to preach this, uh, what I'm about to say, because you're going to say amen in your heart or audibly. There could be some amens today. Uh, to this. But uh, what I mean is, if, if you lead people in any capacity and make any kind of decisions for them, or in any way speak into their life, you will be rejected by some of them. You just will. Uh, it's a basic law of nature on par with gravity. You know, it, it is unavoidable. And theological law as well, which we'll, we'll talk about. Uh, John Piper and his uh, article on spiritual leadership, though the principles here can apply to different Areas of leadership, too, like parenting or um, just being a supervisor in your, your weekly job or whatever, whatever it might be, uh, big or small. John Piper says this, One thing is for sure, if you begin to lead others, you will be criticized. No one will be a significant spiritual leader if his aim is to please others and seek their approval. Paul said in Galatians 1.10, Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Spiritual leaders do not seek the praises of men. They seek to please God. Dr. Carl Lundquist, former president of Bethel College and Seminary, said in his final report to the Baptist General Conference that there was hardly one of the 28 years in which he served the conference that he was not actively opposed by many people. So sign me up, right, uh, for, for leadership. Uh, and I'm actually not trying to dissuade you guys from it. A lot of you are already doing it, but if you're considering it on any level in your life, again, inside, outside of the church, if you will be a parent someday, I'm not trying to dissuade you from it. Uh, in fact, some of you are not leaders yet, but you should because you have a, a bit of a gift for it. You have a skill set for it. Or maybe you don't, but you want to. You want to be trained in it. We have a, an entire branch of our church given over to the specific task of training leaders for being people of spiritual influence and leading others in the church, spiritually speaking, uh, called HLI, which I think Spence talked about last week, so I won't go back uh, into that. So we care deeply for it. I think leadership is one of the greatest things in the world, uh, speaking as a leader. So I'm not trying to dissuade, uh, but you should know what you're getting into. Uh, It's Don't do it. I think Ed Stetzer said about um, leadership in general, maybe, but maybe pastoral leadership. Uh, Ed Stetzer said, if you want to be liked by people, don't be a pastor uh, or don't be a leader. Uh, rather be the ice cream guy, because everyone likes the ice cream guy. You know, I mean, no one doesn't like the ice cream guy. Uh, so, but anyway, you can, again, you can apply that to any kind of leadership situation. That was kind of quippy and, and funny, but 
but, but here's, the, here's the question, though. I'm prefacing, this is to preface what I'm about to say here by a question, and that is, why is this the case? Why is this such a commonly experienced thing in the Bible and a lot of times in our lives? And I'm saying that broadly. I know that all of you won't resonate the same way, maybe with someone you're sitting next to, or you have different experiences with, with this than, than I do, you do, and maybe uh, past situations at your job or churches or in your families. But in general, uh, why is this such a commonly experienced thing, the, the rejection of leadership? Why from the womb the kids basically not want to listen uh, to their parents? Uh, why does every single Disney film consist of the message, don't listen to parents? Which is ba basically, uh, most of them anyway, the, the more recent ones. Don't listen to your mom and dad or any authority figure, but listen to your heart. Like Moana's message, if you guys saw Moana, which I thought was a good movie. This is going to maybe sound overly critical, but um, Moana's message, at least as I read it or saw it, was listen to everyone except your dad. You know, it, it, uh, including the ocean, the ocean speaks to you, listen to the ocean, including your dead grandmother's ghost, uh, and including your own heart. But don't listen to your dad, you know, who's trying to protect you. And, but anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting. So, but now, but, but to be clear, the, the important qualification, sometimes, speaking of human leadership, sometimes leaders need to not be followed. Uh, leaders are sinners, they make mistakes, they make bad calls. You know, so we have to kind of qualify everything that's being said here with, with, uh, with that part. In fact, part of Zechariah 10 and 11 is against bad leaders. You know, God is against manipulative, self-seeking, abusive leadership. God's against that. If you've experienced that, God is against it. He is for you and against that, um, that uh, type of leader. There's grace for them as well. Uh, Jesus died for manipulative leadership too. Uh, we'll come to that a little bit later, but... Um, but he's also against that and seeks to supplant it and replace it with himself as leader and also good kind of under-shepherds, under-overseers, under-pastors, himself being the true shepherd. Like we read in John 10, being the true shepherd, uh, replacing that with good, good, a healthy church uh, leadership. But the question still remains, why do otherwise good leaders get rejected by some who follow them? Why is that a way, why is that such a common motif and... Um, how do we understand our experiences, whether we're leaders or followers, whether we hear about this over there or experience it here in, uh, in the heart or in our own contexts? Uh, one answer to that, we'll look at this from two angles, is it's due to our diamond hard hearts. That's, that's actually a phrase from Zechariah, diamond hard hearts. He referenced, I forget the chapter, a couple of weeks ago we, we looked at it. But the idea here is that when we reject human leadership, uh, we actually reject God's leadership over our lives. They are related. We, we might be inclined to separate those things, uh, but the Bible does not. This is why Stephen preaches the way he does, why Jesus speaks in the parable in the way that he does. He links human prophet and divine prophet. He, he links human leader and divine leader. And he says when, when we reject a human leader, especially unjustifiably, if not solely, it's a whisper of what we're doing to God in our, in our hearts, what we're born into as, as you could say, his children. Uh, in a sense, like a child from the womb rebels, uh, so do we have that propensity uh, towards other leader figures in, uh, in our life to varying degrees. And so, so too much independence or too much of the thought, I can do this myself, or too much of the thought, how dare they require something of me, or too little commitment to community in general can be symptomatic of a heart predisposed to rebellion against God. 
and a heart predisposed to seeking to save the self. Uh, it's very closely related to the idea of saving yourself by what you do, um, or it can be. On the flip side, saying, I need, I mean, really try and work hard at believing this. This is, it's one thing to say you believe this, sort of. <laughs> Another thing to say you believe it perfectly, no one does. Uh, but trying to really believe this from the heart, to say, I really do need others. Being led, generally speaking, is a really good thing. God wants it. I have blind spots. I need help. Or I will do what I can to respect my boss. You know, thoughts like that is many times a symptom or it accompanies a humbled, changed by the gospel heart. Because again, they're related. And, it's, and it accompanies grace as well. To say that I really need to be led is not by, by another person. It's not that far from saying I really need to be led by God. I really need his spiritual input, so to speak, in my life. I really have blind spots. I'm trying to navigate through the haze. I have no idea where I'm going. And I need divine leadership. Those two things are many times linked. And again, it's generalization. It's going to look different people's lives, but many times they're linked, kind of per what we're seeing here uh, in Jesus' parable and, and Stephen's sermon, and also the theme resurfaced in Zechariah 11. So that's one answer uh, why I think just occurs in the human experience so much, all the way from the womb up through our jobs and uh, church and lives and, and, um, and other things. The second thing is uh, to help undergird and tell the gospel story. Again, I think it's doing this unintentionally, uh, rejection is, but it still nevertheless tells a story. The story of how God used our rejection of him, our ultimate leader, to save us from our sins. So this was out of our control, obviously. Uh, we can't really control this when it happens uh, as, as much. It just happens. But the point is, when it does happen, when good leadership is rejected, it actually tells a pretty cool story. It, uh, you know, and God does this all the time, right? He uses difficult, backwards, even sinful things to help tell his love story. Just like he used the death of his son to tell the greatest love story ever told, the center of our faith, so can he use uh, lesser rejections. Uh, in lesser sins uh, to help tell his love story as well. So when a leader is rejected unjustifiably, it whispers humanity's wholesale rejection of Christ. Again, whether on big or small levels. And remember, Jesus predicted this too in his ministry. He said to the first church leaders that there ever were, his, his apostles, his disciples, who became these apostles, which means sent ones, these first church leaders, Jewish Christians, he said, you'll be hated because I am hated. Or, if I was rejected, then you will be as well, because I am in you, and you're continuing my story. You're going to preach the fact that I was crucified for the sins of the world, but you're also going to be crucified yourselves. To demonstrate it with your actions, you will be suffering leaders. You won't always be received. You will. Your message will be received by many, but you will also be hated by many as well. And a cursory reading of the book of Acts uh, is this flashy neon sign that just says, yep, Jesus was right. And our experiences, too, uh, can testify to such things. Now, this obviously doesn't mean, or I hope it's obvious, uh, that, you know, great, rejecting leaders helps tell the gospel story, so now I should reject leaders in my life, you know, now and, and just uh, gossip about my boss and, um, or whatever. Uh, it doesn't mean that. Uh, our, our response, I think, should be threefold. One, uh, you know, whether it's, again, this is in our, this is in our company or our, we're feeling the weight of this, in our own hearts, or it's a church thing, or you just hear about it happening in a different city with your friends in a different church setting, 
or you're reading the Bible about these things, or you're watching Moana, or whatever it is. You know, three things. One, we should be reminded of our own hard hearts. See it as a mirror. Diamond hard hearts. Uh, And how God uses, secondly, how God uses the unjust rejection of his son to save sinners from hell. You're seeing in that moment an image of the fact that God has a plan for rejection. You're seeing an image of, of, of all of us, wholesale, rejecting the true leader of our souls, Jesus Christ. But how God used that masterfully, used it. That's the dramatic twist of the gospel, is that when everything seems like it's headed south, unredeemable, there's no way God can turn it around. God actually uses that entirely to reverse it, to end it, to make a new way, to recreate the, the cosmos, all creation, starting right here with hardened human hearts towards God and authority and leadership and, uh, and people being over us. When, again, we have this predisposition to being our own gods. This is what the gospel does, is it, it challenges that lovingly. It woos us away from that. Rather than slapping our hand, God woos us away in love, saying, I will absorb it all. I won't judge you for, for it. I'm going to actually bring the judgment on myself so that now... Um, Grace can change your heart, and it can humble you to a place where you can follow God, and you can follow other people, again, too. And leaders can say, this is the right way to lead. I'm going to look like Jesus in my leadership. I'm going to lead with love and patience and sometimes a closed mouth. Uh, I'm going to absorb things and not be reactionary in my leadership, too. So the gospel speaks to all of that stuff and and more. We We could go on. The New Testament's full of commands to leaders, full of commands to followers, one of the biggest things you see, actually, in the New Testament in terms of, like, Christian characteristic is submission. Submission, parents to, to uh, or kid, parents to kids, kids to parents, uh, and, um, you know, employees to bosses, and wives to husbands, and Christian to Christian, Christian to Christian, uh, mutual submission amongst the whole church, um, and, and more. Why it's so important to do, because we've all submitted ourselves to God's good, good and loving grace. And so underneath the umbrella of that, the Bible calls us to order our lives uh, and be good leaders and good followers, respectively, whatever God has put in front of us. Okay, that's the first thing, the human side. The second is the divine side of, of the prophecy, back to Zechariah 11. And that is, uh, again, seeing Zechariah as a type or a foreshadowing a picture of Christ ahead of time with his, his role as a rejected shepherd. So there, there are two things here that really point us to Jesus, and I'm going to read through these kind of quickly, make some comments at, at the end. First is, both Zechariah and Jesus are sold for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah 11:12 again says, Then I, Zechariah, said to them. So the context here is he's serving as a shepherd being rejected and kind of saying now, all right, just if you think I'm, as we end this little bit of contract here, as I go my own way, if, if you think I, I'm worthy of some kind of payment, then you can pay me. If not, whatever. That's kind of this final exchange. Zechariah says, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And here's what they did, the people of Israel. They weighed out as, as my wages 30 pieces of silver, which was a slave's wages. Uh, we, we know this contextually and from other parts of the Old Testament. A slave's wages. Uh, it was actually pretty insulting uh, thing for Zechariah to get. Um, but, but directly related, actually, 
explicitly to Jesus' experiences in the New Testament, who was also purchased for 30 pieces of silver by Judas. And so in the New Testament, Matthew 26 says, then one of the 12 of Jesus' friends, his disciples, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Then skipping down a little bit to chapter 27, the aftermath, after Judas changed his mind, returned the money to the chief priests, then hanged himself in guilt, the religious leaders took counsel and bought with them the pieces of silver, the potter's field, as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled, here's the key, then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, and, and Jeremiah is referenced here because he speaks of the same thing, and he's the longer prophet. So poor Zechariah, Zechariah gets left out. But uh, a lot of times the prophets agree. They say the same thing, but only one is, is uh, quoted. So Jeremiah, but also Zechariah says, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. So very explicit very direct fulfillment of Zechariah 11 according to the New Testament. Rejected, but not just rejected, rejected in connection with 30 pieces of, of silver. Then what happens is both Zechariah and Jesus are martyred uh, and killed, respectively. Zechariah is martyred as a prophet, like Jesus is later killed as the ultimate prophet, all by design. We don't know this about Zechariah from this book, uh, but Jesus talks about it in his ministry. Jesus says in Matthew 23, therefore, he's actually kind of speaking about the future here too, which is interesting, talking about how this theme of rejecting leadership will kind of spin forward into the Christian experience and just into history. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who is, again, the prophet we're reading uh, now, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. So by saying Abel and Zechariah, which is kind of cool, it's an A and Z, which fits here. He's bookending. He's saying the first uh, of the killed prophets, essentially, or killed righteous people, people of faith, was Abel in Genesis 4, and the last is Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, uh, before Jesus came, he was the last prophet to be killed. But you killed also everyone in between. So again, think of Jesus' parable. All the, the, the time and time again, Jesus sent these prophets and servants and, uh, and kings and leader types. They were maligned, killed, stoned, various things. Uh, Jesus is kind of bookending saying, like that, uh, it will continue to, uh, to be. Ultimately, referring to himself as the ultimate killed one. So I think this begs the question, uh, why? At least I think this. You know, why, did, why, was, why was Zechariah killed? It's hard enough, I think, to answer why was Jesus killed sometimes. Uh, it, it's, uh, we should have an answer for that. There is an answer. But if you're not quite privy to that yet, I think you should have, as Christians, we should have an answer to that. The New Testament's pretty clear on why he was killed. But it can still be tricky to answer that. But all the more was Zechariah. Why was he killed? And I think to answer that, the context here biblically is, well, what did he say? Because all these guys were killed for what they said and what they, what they did. They're representatives of God. Prophets and kings and leaders, representatives of God. So again, the killing of them is kind of like killing God. 
The attack on them is kind of like attacking God. It, it tells the human story. So if you look at Zechariah and what he said, think about it. He, um, just in short, a couple of big things anyway he said is he's spoken, first of all, I already mentioned this, but he spoke of their diamond hard hearts. You know? So if someone said that to you, I mean, what would your first kind of instinctual, oh, hey, wait a minute, you know, uh, kind of be? But he says, you, your, your hearts are the hardest of minerals, diamonds. The hardest of minerals, that's more descriptive of your heart than, than anything. Nothing can get in. So God's good graces and loving messages and just God himself who, who seeks to be close to you again, nothing can shape it afresh and nothing can get, can get in. So he said that, but he's also talked a ton about grace, how God was going to end that. The prophets speak about a time where he will shape, take diamond hard hearts and make them soft again. He will soften them. He will do something new in the future where he will actually work from the inside out rather than prodding from the outside with laws and commandments that never shape the heart, could never circumcise the heart to quote, another part of the Old Testament, could never reshape, never recreate, never soften. And so he talked about a New Testament and the associated grace with that, which implied time and time again that they couldn't save themselves. It's a fascinating thing to think about it that way, and it's true for us. Grace is the best thing you'll ever hear, and it's extremely offensive at the same time because it strikes at our pride. Saying you have a diamond hard heart, that's hard to hear but saying that we also are saved completely by God and not at all by what we do can also trip people up, especially people who think they're pretty good and have something to bring to the table. So think about it this way. If Zechariah talked about how great the people of Israel were, how they have pretty great hearts, how they could do it if they tried hard enough, how you can have your best life now, and how... You know, and, and, he, and he gave them a nice alliterated list of good things they can do for the world this week, he wouldn't have been martyred. You don't kill people for that. Tim Keller says, you don't crucify good people, you crucify threats. You don't crucify good people, nice guys. You don't crucify nice guys, polite people. You crucify threats. Jesus was a threat to the establishment, a threat to the old order. He threatened the empire we were trying to build in our hearts. He threatened the thought that we could do it. All the while just trying to show grace and love, saying, it's okay. Stop trying so hard. Believe in me. Rest. But he threatened that those, those preconditions we have to be law-centered, self-righteous, prideful, arrogant, self-deifying people which is the core of sin. So what the gospel ends up doing then, usually, I'm sure a lot of you have seen this, if you're evangelizing people right now in your life, if you evangelize lost people, or this is probably, your, I mean, if you're saved, this is probably, as we apply humility here, this is my story, uh, this is probably your story too. Um, and that is, if we preach the gospel to people, it's usually the case, it certainly was in Jesus' life, you can't miss it, that good people will tend to reject it and bad people will tend to accept it. The best of people missed it. The pastors missed it. The religious people missed it. The law keepers, the law-abiding people were too offended by the message. But the prostitutes flocked to him. The tax collectors, the outcasts. What does that tell us about the gospel? Jesus is saying, I'm the answer. 
There has to be offense. Zechariah would not have been killed if he didn't have an offensive, threatening message, even though it's simultaneously the best of messages. It also attacks the pride, right? It attacks, attacks us from the inside out. It at least confronts us and our preconditions to personal empire-building enterprises and religious ladder-climbing enterprises to get to God rather than the belief that he has come to us to die for our sins. So all this to say, Zechariah 11 is a, it's a prophecy about a rejected shepherd bought for 30 pieces of silver then ultimately killed. That's what it's about. Zechariah, Zechariah embodied it. Jesus fulfilled it. Jesus is the true and better Zechariah, who isn't just rejected, isn't just purchased at a slave's wage and then killed, but Jesus is actually crucified for us. Zechariah wasn't killed for us. Jesus is crucified for us. So all of a sudden it becomes clear as to why this pattern of rejecting leadership kind of had to be a part of history, or why it was a part of history. It wasn't just a symptom of diamond hard hearts, it was telling a story. So when Jesus comes and says, I'm the final prophet, I'm the final king, who you rejected beforehand as well, I'm the final leader. And when he's rejected, uh, it, it makes a lot more clear sense as, as to why. Christ is crucified for our sins. And so see, you and I, and I, I encourage you to go back and read more of this in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark and Luke and, and John about Judas. We don't have time today to look into it, um, but... Judas Iscariot was one of Jesus' closest friends. He was someone that Jesus was leading. He was a human being who was a sinner like us. And part of the point of those stories is uh, to, like Israel is to the world, Judas is a microcosm of the human experience. We cannot, if we look at Judas and think, well, at least I haven't done that, we miss the whole point. We miss the power the word has to, to change us and to show us love and grace. If his story is our story, then Jesus' response to him is his to us. We miss out on the good news. If, if, if Judas is just a guy who is worse than us, and man, at least I haven't rejected God that much, we, we lose out on joy and grace. So you and I are Judas. We are the people in Zechariah 11 who are rejecting and insulting Zechariah. The, the shepherd God gives. We've sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and treated him in the most insulting way possible by denying his kingly rule in our life. And we've pursued selfish ventures and comfort in his place. That's the bad news. Remember, the Bible starts not with, uh, when it talks about sin, it does not talk about adultery and murder and lying right away. It talks about people just rejecting God as true king. That's where everything went to hell. It's not what you might classically think of as sin. And those things are sins. But those are symptomatic of a greater problem, of self-deification. Of saying to God, yeah, you're there, but I'm pretty good, so I don't need you that much. That was the first lie Satan gave to Adam and Eve, remember. It wasn't God isn't there. It's he's there, but he's not totally true to his, not totally good to his word, true to his word, and you're okay. You can kind of do this. You can eat that. You can be good. You can be, be your own king. And that's his lie because that's what Satan did as a fallen angel. He sought to be king of the universe. His ultimate sin was pride. 
But here's the question. What is Jesus' response to Judas? Some of you guys have read this. What is Jesus' response? What does he do? Remember, he knows it's going to happen. He predicts it. But after it actually happens, after he's arrested, Judas comes and leads the, uh, the soldiers to arrest him. What does he do? Is it vengeance? Is it accusation and exposure of his sin? Not a word about it. His response is actually this, right here. That's where he goes. Does he slap Judas's hand? I mean, it could have, it could have been the last straw for Jesus, right? It could have been the last straw. But he keeps his mouth shut. He absorbs the offense and shows love for him right here and for you and me. This happens right after that. This is gentleness. This is a picture of a death that slays our sin of greed. Because here Jesus is dying for the sin of greed, and that was the sin of Judas. A little bit of money, more than the Son of God himself. This is a demonstration of patient love for us. See, when you and I sin, when we do wrong, when we have guilt or shame, when we hurt people, even unknowingly, when we offend God, when we self-deify, God's response to you and me is that. It's him saying, I'll take your sin. It's not condemnation. It's not judgment. Isn't that amazing? That's what he thinks about you guys right now and me. This is the essence of the New Testament. This is the center of our faith. And so when, when Jesus fulfills Zechariah 11, you know, he, he's, he's taking on the worst of our attacks, the most insulting of our betrayals, and he comes into the world to absorb them so we don't have to face the punishment for them ourselves. That's the good news. He's not dying for the fact that you looked at porn last week here alone. He is. Was he really dying for, even like up further from that? That's more symptomatic of our greater problem. What's even higher in the totem pole than that? Or more foundational? Mixing metaphors. I don't know which way you want to go. But bigger than that is that we have derided God. And if you, uh, you should read the Gospels sometimes if you haven't already. I'll read them again. Uh, don't, don't rip them out of your Bible. Keep reading them. Uh, but re read what happens to Jesus on the cross. What do the people, when they're walking by, say? Do you remember? What do they do when they look up at him on the cross? There is a wholesale derision. There's a prophecy actually elsewhere in the Old Testament about people wagging heads at the fallen city of Jerusalem, Jesus being the ultimate destroyed city here. And it says that in the New Testament. People walk by, they wag their heads in disgust, like unbelievable, ridiculous. Failed promise keeper. The Son of God, right. Bring yourself down off the cross. Our king, deriding all the while. See, with Jesus' last hours of life, his last breath, even the two criminals on both sides, it says, we're both doing this before the one repented, but they're both doing this. All around, people are mocking, insulting, laughing at the fact that he's king. This is the true nature of sin. We, we've, we've joined the chorus of those voices with our lives from the womb. We've joined it. And this is his response. It's not judgment. It's not to destroy us. He says, I didn't come to condemn, but to save. 
the Old Testament law condemned because it's, it shouted to you, you can't keep it. Too heavy of a burden to keep. But Jesus says, I came to replace that now. And this is how I did. This is the true law. This alone stands between you and God, not yourself. And so the invitation is to take off our crowns and lay them at the foot of the cross, bend the knee and say, and, and stand in amazement at the love of God for us. It's not just a transaction, remember. It is a demonstration of the patient love, gentle love of God, which goes to war for us here. Slain our worst enemies as, as the true and better shepherd and king. Like John 10 said that Spencer read earlier, he lays down his life for the sheep. That's good leadership. He's a good shepherd who lays down his life in front of the wolves. The wolves tear him to pieces, and the sheep survive. That's what God has done for you. He's been torn to pieces so that you might live. That's how bad your sin is and how big the love of God is. That's how amazing it is and how offensive it is. That's how much joy you'll get and how much you'll trip up in all your attempts at being good without God. It's both. Bittersweet, uh, but ultimately sweet. We come to realize that with this gospel, we have eternal life and salvation from sin and, and death. Again, wholesale. So if you have treated Jesus like this, we all have, but th there's good news here, and his response to, to Judas is his response to, to ours. Um, but one last comment. Re remember that what Judas did, th there's two ways we can go when, we're, when we're, we realize our sin, and Judas did, which I can't even imagine those few hours there, uh, what was going through Judas's mind. I can only speculate. But when he came back and gave the money back and said, what have I done? Actually, take the money. I don't want it. I've made a mistake. Full of shame and guilt full of shame and guilt, what does he do? See, we, we have an option. We can go to the gallows. We can commit suicide. We can turn inward on our shame and guilt. Or we can run to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. When we're confronted with that kind of shame, one of two places. And so it's an invitation. Where are you guys going today? Christian and non-Christian. Jesus died for our worst of betrayals. He loves you. Run to him messy. Run to you with still kind of adulterous and betraying thoughts in your heart. Still trying to be king. Run. Bring it to him. Don't wait till it's gone. It'll never be gone. Bring it to him. And hail him as Lord and king of your life and savior of your souls. That we need to do every single day. Not just a conversion, but every single day to find uh, the peace, the grace, the restoration I mean, think of uh, Peter, too, who, uh, another apostle who also betrayed Christ, who denied him three times. He did not hang himself, but rather he was restored by Jesus. Judas and Peter are distinct responses to sin at the foot of the cross. One hangs, one is restored. Which is it going to be? And I am speaking to those of you who are Christians as well. This is not just about conversion. What about today when you sin? What, what about the 20 sins I committed while I was sleeping last night? And I woke up just caked in it. You know, where do, where do we go? In Zechariah's day, the people of Israel had something else to look to. But with Christ, we don't. There's no other Savior. There's no other prophecy. There's no other future second Jesus coming. 
See, he's the end of history, the end of it. And so that's kind of the warning wrapped up with it as well is cast your cares and everything on Jesus. He, he's the, the end of prophecy. He's the end cap. There is no more to be fulfilled. He's the last. And in this way, he resembles and goes past what Zechariah pointed to and embodied with his words and his death, his martyrdom, and his wholesale rejection. Uh, believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He loves you guys. Let's pray. God, thank you so much uh, for the gospel today of Christ, for how you have clearly, throughout history, used rejection to help tell your love story. Your love is so strong, you face rejection. Ours, you absorb it. Uh, you're kind of like a, a parent who holds his kid tightly as that child is trying to punch the parent in and angst, and frustration, and disobedience, but holding tight until the punches stop, saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. You're mine. And with gentleness, you have won us over. And, and that call is still for all of us today, Christian or not, the gentle, gentle, patient love of Christ is there uh, if we simply ask for God to forgive us and um, to be a fresh king of our life, that we might follow him, our, our true leader. In Christ we pray. Amen.